Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. The Wolf administration has decided to shut down two state prisons in order to save money with a $600 million budget shortfall looming. The announcement came as a bit of a, of a surprise to many. Although the state's prison population has been declining, it's at about 48,000 right now, closing two prisons and relocating the inmates will put the prisons at about 9% over total operational bed capacity. Hundreds of prison employees could be impacted by the moves. The move is creating some concerns. And to hear what some of those concerns are today, Jason Bloom, who is president of the Pennsylvania State Corrections Officers Association. Mr. Bloom, welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. In that introduction, I said that uh, this was a bit of a surprise to many. Was it a surprise to you and your union? Absolutely. Absolutely. We, uh, we received a call the day prior to them announcing the the closings, so to speak, they they called all the unions in. Who's they? The Department of Corrections. Okay. They called us in, sat us down, and pretty much said, here you go. This is what we got going, going on. We got five prisons. We're going to close two. And they closed two prisons four years ago. And at the time, the, the uproar was basically the same as now, except then Secretary Wetzel said that... Uh, Hey, we don't have any playbook for this, so we're we're not we're not going to get everything right. And he, that was about the only thing that he was correct on. He didn't get it right. He didn't get it right then. And to tell you the absolute truth, I don't know how you could have screwed it up any worse. But he did this time around. They didn't do anything right. Instead of you, you told us four years ago they're going to close two prisons, now you tell me, oh, we're going to here's five, and we're going to pick two between now and the twenty sixth. So in the meantime, three three weeks, you're going to have five communities just up in arms or basically twisting in the wind. You have five communities that don't have a clue. Is it me? Is it me? Is it me? And it's completely and utterly unfair. And I know life isn't fair, but we work at a job that not everybody can or is willing to do. And at this point, the Department of Corrections is treating the employees, not only my employees, my, my members, but every other employee that works inside that prison is just a number. They have completely discounted that they have mortgages, they have car payments, they have children. You know what I mean? They're not looking to worry about if they have to relocate the, the whole nine yards. I mean, the whole gamut of exactly what life is all about. You go to work, you do your job, you come home, and somewhere along the line, you expect your employers to take care of you, not take advantage of you. But you're a state employee. Correct. Governor Wolf said when he made this announcement is that uh, with this budget deficit that is looming uh, by the end of uh, the fiscal year, June 30th, uh, 2017, that priorities have to be set, and he would rather spend money on education than on prisons, especially when the prison population is declining. Your response to that? Declining? Okay. Uh, by their own numbers, last year they had 50,000. And as of right now, they're at 49.3, not counting the 500 inmates that they have in county jails, which is crazy to me. Why are we paying a county 
to do exactly what my members are paid to do. If you have bed space, why are we paying a county? You're paying for them twice, which doesn't make any sense. But government usually doesn't make much sense to me at times. But uh, getting back to my original mm-hmm. point, though, uh, and, and this is no opinion. I'm just asking the questions. I, I mean, I remember just a few years ago that uh, many times, and you see this on social media, you know, why are we spending, we mean Pennsylvania, spending so much on prisons and not, uh, doesn't it make more sense to spend more money on education, on schools, than it does on prisons? Now, this is your life. I mean, this is what you do for a living. So, obviously, you don't want to be pitted against those. But when you know, there are probably Pennsylvania say, you know, this is a good thing that we're closing down prisons and putting more money into education. What do you say to that? Well, you always want to invest in your future, so to speak, and that's what the, that's what education does. And if you can educate somebody to keep them out of my line of work, that's a great thing. No one's going to dispute that. That's absolutely a great thing. But the whole the cold hard reality is we have people that do bad things that have proven they can't live in society and you have to watch them you have to put them behind bars they've proven that they can't be out and about and that is just it's a necessity of life and the necessity is that you need people like me to do that job to keep the public safe we don't want a riot you don't want killers running around you surely don't want us to lose one and have them running amok and everybody's up in arms and going, okay, where's, you know, where's, we don't want to play where's Waldo with an inmate. Mm-hmm. And the way things are going, you don't, you absolutely, this job is a very, very difficult job. And some people might say, oh, you go, you go to jail and you watch it. What we do is nothing like the movies. Yeah, that was one of the questions well, a lot of people. That's yeah. the only. That's the only. That's the only vision or look. What most people think right. of as a CEO, a corrections mm-hmm. officer, is what they see in prison. Yeah, and that's that's the farthest thing from the truth. We're not carrying or guns I, around. When I say in prison, I mean on TV. Sorry. I understand. Yeah, I understand. Okay. Yeah, we're. It's you're not carrying a gun. You're not on a catwalk. I can honestly say, when I was hired 25 years ago. You have your brain, you have your uniform, and they issued me a whistle. Now, I walk amongst them. That's exactly what all my members do. We're down on the floor, in the prison, right there with them, literally rubbing elbows with the inmates. So that the, the whole philosophy or, or that whole mindset of what, what Hollywood has made prison is the furthest thing from the truth. All right. So you have been quoted as saying in so many words that this is a disaster looming. Why? Describe what you see coming down the line if this happens. You, you can't continue to shove inmates or stack them like cordwood, as I have said, into institutions that are already overpopulation. We, we're, the, the department is running at about 104%. Now you want to close two prisons and take those extra inmates and shove them in somewhere else. Why? You you can't continue to put people that do not use conflict resolution as speaking to each other. Their idea of resolving something is either sticking you with a toothbrush or a shiv or punching you in the face. That's basically how they, they... 
resolve conflict. And if you keep putting more and more of those types of individuals on top of each other, it, it's, a res it's a powder keg and you're just walking around with a lit cigarette. That, that doesn't make any sense. The department right now wants to say, okay, we're, we're running it at this capacity. Well, you're trying to take that capacity and run it to the emergency level and there is no emergency. There, there's, there's, there's no need. Okay. I, to wanna, do it. I want you to define something here for me because, uh, you know, I in my introduction uh, talked about uh, the uh, total operational bed capacity. Uh, there are a couple terms that are floating around. What, if any, input or involvement do corrections officers have in establishing operational versus emergency bed occupation levels in facility? Uh, how does that work in general? That's that's entirely in the hands of the Department of Corrections. We, you have no input at all? None. Absolutely none. I mean, when we quote numbers, we're quoting straight off of their web page, their numbers, what they deem they are. And I'll just tell you, simply, Frackville is at 104%. Cambridge Springs is 118%. Huntington is at 118%. Smithfield is at 120% above capacity. Why would you let these institutions that are over capacity, why wouldn't you spread them out, even out the board, so to speak? I mean, Mercer's at 95.5, so they have a couple empty beds, but really, you have full bed, you have your over capacity to other jails, so you're rolling the dice. You're literally rolling the dice every day that something doesn't happen. And I understand anything could happen at any capacity. That's just the reality of what we do. I mean, when we have a bad day in our, in our line of work, it's a really bad day. But let's try to make it a little easier, a little bit safer all the way around. Those institutions that you mentioned that are at 118%, have they had any incidents while they have been at that capacity? Define incident. Well, I mean, have there been riots? Have there been no. has there been any uh, additional instances of uh, violence with that overcrowding uh, well, level? You always have violence inside an institution. Housedale is the last is the last place that we actually had something that went wrong in in the yard where we had to call uh, cert teams in in correctional emergency response teams, and they're at a hundred and five percent, and they're still running at 105%. So they don't even learn from past mistakes. No one wants to see a riot. Nobody wants to lose a prison. And that's, that's our job to contain that and keep it under control. It's just, it's simply their numbers. They make them say whatever they want. But when you come out and you tell me what they are, I'm going to use them. And Houtsdale, like I said, that was the last time that anything significant happened. We've, we, we just had an officer assaulted in Graterford, and he was stabbed with a pencil in the eye. And Graterford's, they're at 96%. So violence can happen anywhere at any time. That The number I'm giving you, you know what I mean. But so you're saying that uh, you know the the higher the percentage of uh, capacity, that the more potential there is for for an incident or something to happen. I would say that there's a higher percentage for something to really go wrong. If if you're at SCI Huntington in August and it's 115 degrees on the fourth tier, 
tempers are short. I mean, it's it's just that it's that simple. It's just like that anywhere. But the fewer people you have to corral in the end, you're that much better off. You use the word corral, and I want to have you describe that a little bit more in a moment. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. We're talking about the looming closing of uh, two state prisons announced uh, earlier this month by the Wolf administration. The decision, or at least the announcement, will be made uh, a week from Thursday, January 26th. Five uh, prisons are on the chopping block right now. Our guest is Jason Bloom, president of the Pennsylvania State Corrections Officers Association. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. Also on Twitter, at SmartTalkWITF. That's 1-800-729-7532. You know, you use the word corral, and that puts an image in, uh, in my mind of what you're talking about. But describe the situation when... You say that, um, you know, a, a prison population is 118 percent, 105, even 101 percent, uh, that it's over capacity by 1 percent, 18 percent. That is describing the number of beds, I assume. So what happens when a prison is over capacity? Well, it, it's, it's just simply it's over capacity instead of a cell being designed for one inmate, they put two in there they put a bunk bed in put a guy in there a day room that isn't designed to keep inmates but for a certain amount of time you stack nine du- double bunks in there now you have 18 in there that's not what the prison was designed to z- designed to do or to handle so that's how they continue to make more bed space inside an institution and let's use them the way they were designed and what they were designed for Mm-hmm. Can you talk about how often officers see inmates otherwise eligible for parole uh, maxing out because their home plan hasn't been approved or halfway house or full, et cetera, that they're still in jail? Oh, this administration with Wetzel, if they're, if they're eligible to get out, they're trying to get them out because they want that bottom number. They want that number to look like, hey, crime is down. Prison, prison population is down. They're going to push them out the door as quick as they can. And it right now, I believe a number that I just saw was for probation and parole, I believe they have around 2,000 absconders right now. That that's, the, that's what they're supposed to do is to, we let them out and they keep track of them. Check in with them, make sure they're doing the things they're supposed to do. And we have 2,000 missing that's an entire jail right there. What do you mean 2,000 missing? Two, they don't know where they're at. They've absconded. They're gone. They haven't checked in with a parole agent. They may be right down, the, right down the street, but no one has checked on them. No one knows where they're at. Have you heard at all from the Board of Probation and Parole or your counterparts for parole probation officers as far as uh, their concerns about the increased workload potentially being an impact of the prison closures? No, nothing. They haven't reached out to us, now. Do you know? I, I know I can't get you to speak for them, but is this something that would be of concern to them? I would assume so. Mm-hmm. More more work, less people. Uh, you've mentioned Secretary of Corrections John Wetzel. John Wetzel has been a guest on the program uh, several times. Uh, he is hailed nationally as being a pioneer when it comes to reform. 
that uh, you know the idea is to get nonviolent offenders out of jail if they have a substance abuse problem, to get them into uh, into drug treatment. Uh, if they are, have a mental illness, that they they do get some treatment. Do you support that? I support if if someone's mentally ill. Absolutely, they need to be taken care of. They need to be looked after. They need to be treated. And as far as the the drug thing, you have to be able to treat that individual. You want them to be able to come to prison and then become a productive member of society. They, you want them to learn and be able to go back out. And, and I don't ever want to see them again. That, that's the way it is. But there's there's always somebody trying to get to jail. So I'm not, not really worried about that. But we cannot at the expense of public safety let people out who aren't ready to get out i truly believe if you've committed a crime and you've gone to court and you've been convicted and you have a set of things that have been set out for you to do to accomplish before you can be paroled and you do those things yeah you paid your debt to society go on about your business but if you're not and you haven't and we're just trying to save a couple dollars to push you out into the streets that's wrong but that's, that's that that's wrong to the victim bottom line are you saying that public safety will be jeopardized if these two prisons close i truly believe it will be yes in in two facts one you're going to cause a greater strain on the other institutions and you're going to cause a greater strain, which could potentially be a bigger problem. And if you're going to put them out early, they're not ready. And what do you what do you do with them then? So yeah, you, you, if you're not ready, if my whole job is to watch bad people, and that's that's what we do, and and I, we take great pride in that we do it well. And no matter what they do or how hard the Department of Corrections or the secretary makes it, we're going to continue to march and do everything we possibly can to protect the public. We have a phone call from Sean in Lisburn. Sean, you're on the air. Oh, hi, Scott. Hi. And I, I, I hope I don't sound like a fool here, but uh, I'm getting one side. Uh, my father was in prison, and I've done time in prison. I grew up in the 60s, 70s, uh, and I, I met a lot of people in there. I don't I don't feel that I'm a bad person, but I kind of grew into the family business at that time. It was selling drugs, which uh, marijuana, and to consenting adults. Uh, but regardless, I did the crime. I had to go to jail, and I feel as though I learned a lot of worse behaviors in prison and that it is a system that is set up for failure. I've heard the term doing life in, oh, how's it go? Uh, uh, doing life in segments. You know, you, you get out and you're just set up for failure. Guys are getting out and going right back in. They can't even be out. There's guys that have been out for not even a whole day and end up going right back to jail. If they're set up, almost set up for failure, there's got to be a better way All right, is what I'm saying. Sean, thank you very much for your call. I don't know whether you could address that or, or, or not because it's not really your job to, you know, see the big picture for the most part you're you're there on a daily basis correct the, 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 my job 
is if you're in prison, is to watch you to make sure you don't get out. Programming and all the other things, that's on the department themselves. You know, obviously, being the president of the union, uh, one of your big concerns is your members. And we're, we're talking about 800 uh, prison employees who may be impacted by this. Now, the administration has said that uh, they will be offered uh, positions elsewhere. Uh, you know, I'm curious, the last time when the pr two prisons closed, did uh, any CEOs, uh, anyone, uh, em employees, how many or how many, maybe should be the question I ask, lost their jobs? Everyone was offered a, a position somewhere. But, you know, a lot, of pe a lot of individuals that were of age to retire did retire. They didn't want to go. They didn't want to learn a new institution. They didn't want to have to drive. A lot of my members, just like everybody, you try to live close to your work. And if you're talking about putting somebody on the road, if you already live 20 minutes away from, the, from your institution and now they want to offer you a job 60 miles or 70 miles on the other side, of, on, on the opposite side, now you're driving 90 miles? Really? That, I mean, I understand a lot of people drive to go to work, but that's not... It's just not fair to the to individual or if they they uproot their family and move somewhere else. Like I said, right now, you have five communities that don't have a clue. And rest assured, there's some son or daughter sitting in school worried about if that if, if dad has to move and I have to move. Now I'm going to a, a, a brand new high school for my senior year. But. Right now, there, there's five communities that are right there that don't have any clue. That apprehension is spread out over five institutions, over five communities. And I think they could have done a whole lot better by going along the lines that the federal government did for the defense-based closings, where you have hearings. You put things out there a year in advance. You let everybody know. So if somebody gets hired at one of these institutions and they know that, okay, it, it could be on a chopping block, well, they don't buy a house. They don't build a house. They, they, they may rent and then be able to move one way or the other. And I just think there's a, a, a better process. And I would hope that the legislators can, can find that process and keep this from happening again, being sprung on not only them, but definitely me. And let me point out that, uh, that you know, these communities that you mention you, and you talk about pitting them against one another, for many of them, if, if not all of them, uh, the prison may be one of the largest employers. Uh, and if you take away that, that large employer, then they, these people do have to find jobs elsewhere, and that can hurt a community uh, economically. Again, I think that there are many people who are looking at the big picture, though, is you know comparing prisons being, you know, should we, our economy uh, be relying on a prison? Put it that way. I'm just putting these things out for, for background purposes. Let's uh, go to the phone now. Andy is in Harrisburg. Andy, you're on the air. Thank you very much, and it is a, it is a great discussion we're having. Um, my question is, and you might have covered it before, I didn't hear the whole thing, but I'll be quick. Um, if closing two of these prisons is going to cause other prisons to be overcrowded, and I understand you guys like to do your job well, how will you do your job well in an overcrowded prison? And if you can't do your job well, are you going to do it 
poorly. Thank you very much for your call, Andy. No, we're not going. Andy, we're not going to do our job poorly by any stretch of the imagination. We're going to continue to keep convicted felons behind the walls or behind the fences. Our job is to keep them in, and we're going to continue to do that. I'm just simply stating that if you're designed to hold 1,500 inmates, and now you have 1,800 inmates, it makes the job tougher, just like a teacher. If a teacher, you want your classes to be small, you want that individuality, you want that hands-on teaching, we... As, as corrections officers, you can't see everything. There's just no way that you can see anything that's going, everything that's going on. So you want to lim- limit the number of individuals that you're trying to keep an eye on to a, to a, a manageable amount. But rest assured, my membership, we will continue to do the job no matter how we have to do it. Bob is in Harrisburg. Bob, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Uh, many years ago, I did a paper on the failure of the rehabilitation ethic in prisons. And basically, Mr. Bloom is saying exactly what I discovered, and that is that there's a for-profit aspect that's guiding everything. There's no rehabilitation because they depend on recidivism. There's no true sense of treating the individual at a deeper emotional level where the person is actually acting antisocially. And I'm sorry that uh, there may be people whose jobs might be affected by closures. But the other hand, the idea of calling people corrections officers is a terrible misnomer when all they are are real wardens and guards in basically large dog pounds. And I'm sorry that uh, Mr. Bloom doesn't understand that we really need to change the entire approach to prisons. Bob, thanks for your call. Wow. Uh, I would, first thing, I'm not a guard. Uh, all my people are corrections officers. It is a profession. Profession. It's something that we've chosen to do. Exactly. And our profession is to watch individuals. Like I said before, our main goal is care, custody, and control. Control, custody. We keep them in. That is the bottom line of what my H1 membership does. So, all the other stuff, okay. We're almost out of time, but we had a question from an, another uh, listener. Wanted to know how many prisoners are on death row, and uh, if they, let me just follow this a little bit. Uh, would that uh, reduce the numbers if these prisoners weren't on death row? I don't quite understand the question, but uh, is, that is, is the question removing them from death row by putting them to death? Uh, well, I, I don't know, Scott. I, I mean, one less person inside the institution, it absolutely does lower the number. Yeah, but I think that's uh, what he was saying is that if uh, the, the people who are on death row were actually executed, that uh, there would be fewer. But. The realistically, I mean, we've had three executions in this state in the last 25 years, and they all three were volunteers. They were not uh, people who uh, they stopped their, you know, their uh, appeals, appeals and that kind of thing. All right, so we're almost out of time. I want to thank you very much for being with us today. So what do you think? Do you have any recourse here? 
Will you be working with the administration? Will you be talking to the administration? Or do you just have to wait for that decision next Thursday? We're just going to have to wait for that decision next Thursday. We have uh, hearings on on Monday the 23rd. Hearings with who? The Senate. Mm-hmm. And we're going to pitch and we're going to sell that, listen, I don't want any prison to close. None. We need them all open. We need them up and running. And we're going to try to convince them and the Department of Corrections. I don't know how successful we'll be, but we'll continue to do what we need to do. Rick Bloom is the president of the Pennsylvania State Corrections Officers Association. Rick, or Jason, did I say Rick? It's I'm right. thinking Rick Bloomingdale of the AFL-CIO. Jason Bloom. Jason, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you very much. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. The Pennsylvania Auto Show opens a week from Thursday at the State Farm Show Complex and Expo Center. The Auto Show is always one of the Mid-State's most popular destinations for those who may be in the market for a new car or who just want to see the latest models and technology. Well, today we're going to be talking about trends and the future of automobiles. Our guest is Washington Post reporter Stephen Overly, who writes about automobiles and anchors and edits the Washington Post innovation section. Uh, Mr. Overly, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. If you have a question or a comment about cars... We know this is something that a lot of people like to discuss. Give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You know, I I just described uh, the Pennsylvania Auto Show, and there's a number of other auto shows around the country, Detroit, of course, being the big one, but there's one in Philadelphia coming up in uh, a a few weeks as well. You get the sense that uh, many people just like walking around, if they're not in the market for a new car, uh, that they just want to see what's new so let's talk about some consumer trends for 2017 what are we what are some of the biggies sure so one of the biggies and this has been playing out for for a number of years now but we we've seen it more than ever is the appeal of crossover or cross utility vehicles um they're they're a car that many listeners would probably just think of as an suv things like the toyota rav4 or the honda crv but they're basically smaller suvs that have you know hatchbacks and some of the features of an suv but they're built on a car platform and get better fuel efficiency than you might expect of sort of a large truck-like suv Um, those were very big sellers last year about nearly a third of all new car sales were actually crossovers and you saw that on the showroom floor in detroit I mean, a number of automakers, you know, Nissan, Ford, GM, all were featuring crossover vehicles, knowing that that's what a lot of consumers will be looking at in the new year. 1-800-729-7532 is our phone number if you have a question or a comment or send an email to smarttalk at org. You know, I the, the crossover thing, you do see more of them out in the road, but I, just as you described, there are so many people who just refer to them as an SUV. Is the biggest reason the crossover is popular because of that fuel efficiency? I think that's one reason, um, but, I, you know, there many of the folks who are buying crossovers used to own cars. Um, and I think one of the big reasons you're seeing this transition, one, they're, they are more full of fuel efficient you know, version of, the, of an SUV, but they also give you a lot more versatility. Um, you know, the, the hatchback and, and sort of fold down seats give you more storage space. 
the fact that you sit up higher off the road maybe gives you better visibility and a greater feeling of safety. You know, and for those reasons, analysts have said they're popular with a number of different categories of drivers. So that could be, you know, millennials with young families, that could be baby boomers or, or folks who need to haul stuff from time to time. Uh, so I think that versatility is also a really big driver. You know, it seems as though every year when a new model comes out or new models, uh, because let's face it, when one gets something, um, it doesn't take long for another model to have it. But technology, I mean, vehicles, cars are so different today than just a few years ago. What are some of the new technology trends? Sure. Well, you know, nowadays it seems when you buy a car, you're really buying a computer on wheels. Absolutely. Um, and in, and in many cases, you know, that is true. Um, I think you're seeing technology enter the car in a number of different ways. You know, we've, we've had for a while now sort of entertainment systems or infotainment systems that are, are more tech-driven, right? You no longer get a CD player or tape player, certainly, in your car. Um, and that's really more so the case than ever before, where you have these more sophisticated entertainment systems that you know allow you to connect not just with music and radio, but with apps, for example, apps that you might be using today on your smartphone, you can access from your car. And that's increasingly true. Um, many cars now are, are starting to come with internet connections, or at least the ability to connect to the internet, um, which obviously opens up a lot more applications in the car. Um, you're also, and this is sort of new this year, we saw some in Detroit, but more so at the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, um, automakers introducing artificial intelligence into the car. Um, and so, you know, many of us have heard of Amazon Echo or Google Home, kind of these devices that y you speak to and, and tell it to play music or order pizza. Well, those technologies are now moving from inside your home to in the car. So, you know, for example, Ford announced a partnership with Amazon around its Echo um, product where, it, you know, assuming you're, you have it all synced up correctly, you'll be able to, for example, start your car from your living room just by speaking to your, your home uh, AI device and, you know, saying, Alexa, start my car. And, you know, your, your car would start up in the driveway. So we're starting to see tech integrations like that as well. You know, I, sometimes I ask uh, some basic questions. Uh, someone who says, Alexa, start my car, uh, what if it's not you? I mean, will there be voice recognition? So the, they are developing more sophisticated voice recognition. Um, but at, at this point, you know, the, certainly your car would need to be within um, – close proximity to the home, there are kind of safeguards built into place so that, you know, you're not out on the road somewhere and someone in your home, you know, says, Alexa, power down my car and it, it shuts off. You know, I think they are thinking through kind of all of these safety and security concerns. Um, but, you know, it's very early days with this technology. And so we, I think, will continue to see it get more sophisticated and, frankly, more safe. Well, when we're talking about safety, I mean, obviously one of the safety issues that we deal with here in Pennsylvania and across the country is people texting while driving or, uh, you know, not paying attention to driving on the road. Uh, is there any technology to help make it safer or to keep that from happening? There, there is some, and I think, you know, distracted driving is certainly uh, an issue, and as more technology enters the car, there, there's a question of whether that will become even more of a problem, right? Um, but there, you know, one of the key 
technologies coming into cars nowadays are sort of voice recognition technologies that allow you to text or control the car, you know, change the radio station, for example, hands-free, so that you're, you can keep your hands on the wheel, you know, keep sort of focused on, on the task of driving and just use your voice to kind of control the technology in your car. Uh, we, we are increasingly seeing that. We're also seeing, you know, when it, other technologies that are entering the car, we're seeing a lot of driver assist technologies, which, which the big argument there is that they improve safety. So, these are technologies like sensors that will alert you if you're changing lanes when perhaps you don't mean to, right? A sign you might be drifting or a car is coming up in your blind spot, for example. You might get a, a light that turns on to sort of notify you to that. And these are all technologies that are, you know, can be a little pestering. Some drivers may not, may not like them necessarily, but they're designed to make the driving experience safer. And bottom line, are today's vehicles safer than just a few years ago? I think, um, I haven't looked at the latest data on this, but I, I think there is certainly evidence to suggest that that is the case. Um, you know, automakers, as they are introducing new technology and sort of in, into the vehicle, the very first argument they're always making is safety. Um, we hear this a lot within the conversation around self-driving vehicles, um, which we saw a bit of at both Detroit Auto Show and really at CES. Um, but the argument really there is you, that we can reduce, if not ultimately eliminate, you know, fatal car collisions just by taking away some of the human error that is inherent in driving. Um, and so I think you, you'll continue to hear this argument around sort of safety and, and improving not just the driver experience, but driver safety on the road. Our guest during this portion of the program is Washington Post reporter Stephen Overly. He writes about automobiles and anchors and edits the Washington Post innovation section. The uh, Pennsylvania Auto Show is coming up uh, starting next Thursday, a week from uh, tomorrow. And so a lot of the things we'll be, we're talking about here, maybe you can see those on uh, some of the vehicles at the Auto Show. Give us a call if you have a question or a comment, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at WITF.com. And I'll probably get back to uh, some of the new technology. But, uh, you know, one of uh, the main object, excuse me, one of the main objects of what uh, the Obama administration wanted to do with the vehicles was to increase fuel mileage. And in fact, uh, I understand that the president uh, signed uh, something earlier this week that will keep his order in place that vehicles uh, in just a few years will be able to get uh, 51 miles per gallon on the highway. So, you know, I, I keep wondering when I remember just a few years ago when that first came out is how are they ever going to do that when right now we're kind of in the mid to, or excuse me, the low to mid 30s. So is that is still in place, but how will manufacturers get to that level of fuel mileage? Sure, well, I think it's going to take... Um Increased technology in the car, um, you know, not just you know, sort of the technology that we as uh, as a driver might interact with, but the technology, un, you know, under the hood or beneath the car that's kind of powering all of this. Another way that automakers are really getting at sort of fuel efficiency is through electric vehicles and hybrid vehicles. We saw a lot of those at the Detroit Auto Show, and we've seen announcements from many automakers that they are expanding their line of electric vehicles. Um, just to give you an example, I know Mercedes 
you know, has announced that they plan to develop 10 uh, electric vehicles in the coming years. Uh, Ford, I believe it's 13. Uh, Volkswagen, which has gone really aggressive with this, is working on 30 different um, sort of electric or electrified vehicles. And those, you know, obviously, if they're all electric, don't rely on gasoline fuel. And if they're plug-in hybrid or partial electric, maybe they sometimes rely on it. But those, again, are all designed, you know, to improve fuel efficiency and, you know, lessen the environmental impact of cars. So I think that's another area where we've seen a lot of investment, a lot of new vehicles come on the road. Um, and, and it's an area where automakers really hope to address the fuel efficiency issue. Now, there there is still data to suggest that many people are not buying electric vehicles, that adoption of them has been quite slow, but there is an expectation that will change in the years to come. Well, one of the reasons I would think that uh, people have kept from buying electric vehicles is that uh, how far you can go on, on one charge. Are they making improvements in that area? Absolutely. I think, you know, that is a big concern that consumers have voiced, this idea of, you know, if my if my gas tank is low, I know how to fix that problem, right? I know that there's a gas station, you know, relatively close. What do I do if my car's running, the battery's running low on juice, right? I think that's that's a fear a lot of consumers might have, and automakers are working to address that. You're seeing, you know, the, the distance cars can travel on a single charge, it continues to grow. Um, you know, we're, we're now well north of 200, 250 you know, miles on a single charge, approaching 300, and many are sort of working on crossing that threshold um, very quickly. We also saw, <clears throat> excuse me, an, a joint announcement from the Obama administration and automakers that they would be installing charging stations along major thoroughfares so that you would have places to plug in, you know, similar to the concept of a gas station when you're out and about on the road. You know, there are some who say that that fear is a bit inflated because the the amount that we drive on any given day is far less than what than the distance you can currently get on a charge. And so you could go about your day, you know, your commute to work, run your errands and then plug in at night when you get home. The, the bigger issue is if you're going to be driving longer distances, and that's where I think some consumers start to feel uncomfortable, and that's why we're seeing this issue get addressed. You know, something I read about, and this is probably just one example of, of technology and the manufacturers working on better gas mileage, about uh, are they called e-shocks that uh, a shock absorber would actually hit a pothole, would actually provide better gas mileage to a vehicle? How's that work? I'm actually not familiar that, with that technology, to be honest. That's something I'll have to look into. But it, it sounds like it's an example, again, of, you know, automakers looking at ways that they can, you know, reconfigure the technology in your car to make it more fuel efficient. You know, we saw last week the, um, the EPA sort of reaffirmed its fuel efficiency standards for 2025, saying that they want automakers to get a sticker value of 36 miles a gallon by the model year 2025. And, you know, in their review, one of the things they have said is that the technology sort of exists already to get there. Um, it's a matter of automakers sort of continuing to build that into the car. Now, you know, they may disagree. Automakers would like to see some of those regulations rolled back, you know, but that was sort of the argument the EPA made was that we do have this technology. It's a matter of really implementing it um, quickly and efficiently. Let's go to the phone now. Mike is in Halifax. Mike, you're on the air. 
Good to talk to you. Th- thank you very much uh, for this opportunity. I've got two questions. One's a technological question. One's a cultural question. I'll go with the technological question first. If uh, driverless cars are the future, what what happens to the the rest of us as we're trying to get into that technology and we don't have uh, cars that perhaps talk to each other? Is there going to be some sort of a oh, a, a mod or a modification or some sort of a device that will be required to take, to carry with us or to attach to our vehicles so that they can talk to the driverless vehicles as we make the transition from one type of transportation to another? So that's an excellent question, and it's one that um, automakers and regulators are, are really grappling with. I, I don't think that you'll be required to somehow retrofit your car to communicate with dr- self-driving cars, for example. I think the, the logistical hurdle and headache that that would create would be significant. Instead, what you're seeing is as these new technologies are being developed, they're being designed with the idea in mind that not all cars on the road are going to have them, probably for the next several decades. So if you, have, if you do have a self-driving car on the road, it has to be able to account for the fact that you know, other cars are being driven by humans and don't have the same technology on board, and it'll have to make all of its decisions with that in mind. Um, so hopefully that sort of addresses your question, but I think the, the, the onus will be on these new technologies to fit themselves into our world as opposed to us fitting ourselves into a world where everything is powered by technology. Mike, what was okay. your second question? Uh, a societal one, cultural one. Uh, for more than 100 years, auto manufacturers have been selling auto, uh, automobiles with the idea that driving an automobile is, is a pleasurable activity. There's rarely a commercial that's on television that doesn't show someone driving an automobile and, and getting some sort of a emotional boost out of doing so. If we're going to go to driverless automobiles, even though we recognize they're safe, what's going to be the, the emotional uh, boost that you're going to get uh, getting into a car and having the car take you somewhere? Uh, perhaps acting in a way that would be very different than the way you might act, seeing the same kind of things on the road. I, I get a feeling there's going to be a real disjoint there. Hey, Mike, thanks very much for your call. And i got to say, that's an excellent question. That That is a fantastic question. And it's interesting because there are different perspectives on it, I think, within the industry, both among the automakers and among analysts. Because, you know, you're right, they're, they're the day-to-day when we drive in our cars, it's sort of a commute to work or running errands. It's not necessarily this glamorous open road activity, right? And, it, you know, there are some who say, well, self-driving cars, sort of this future, they just have to shuttle us from one place to another, right? That they don't necessarily need to be exciting. They just need to be efficient. Um, but there's, there's a very separate school of thought to the caller's point that, you know, driving is sort of this exhilarating, fun activity. And how do we preserve that as we move toward a self-driving future? And I think there's sort of two, two ways people are talking about this. One, um, and we've heard this from folks particularly at Ford, is this idea that you may, you, you may continue to own a car that you drive. It's just when you drive, it will be different. So, for example, you may take a self-driving car you know, that's part of a ride-sharing fleet to work every day. And you may take that to run your errands. But on the weekend when you're, you, know, you want to go out on the open road and really open up the engine, that's when you'll drive your own car. And instead of owning you know, a, a practical vehicle or a practical sedan, maybe you'll own some sort of you know, sport utility vehicle or some sort of um, you know, convertible that you've always wanted to own. So you'll have kind of a fun car. Um, the other argument, and we've seen this a lot as we talk about technology coming into the car, is that 
what you enjoy about the driving experience will change, right? So it may no longer be speeding down the roadway. Instead, it'll be the fact that you can listen to more music or do more activities inside your car because you don't need to worry about the driving. The car takes care of that for you. Um, now, I should preface all that by saying that's many, many years away, I think. But, you know, that's the future that people are talking about. Tom is in Harrisburg. Tom, you're on the air. Hi there. I have a question about uh, technology Technology that's going to be advancing with cars. Um, if we're leaning more towards cars that self-turn for you and brake when the car thinks it needs to brake, is that really worth when the car fails? and brakes when it's not supposed to or turns into another car and then has a fatality because the computer system failed. Hey, thank you very much for your call. Basically, what he's talking about is when the technology fails. Right. Well, you know, that's something, you know, this technology is being rigorously tested. It's the reason why we don't yet have self-driving cars on the road, because they do require more testing, both in real-world situations as well as in simulated situations. Um, Google and, and Ford, for example, have been sort of leaders in that, GM as well, kind of testing self-driving vehicles both in cities around regular cars. We're already seeing that, but also on tracks and in computer simulated scenarios. Um, I think you know, the, it's going to be incumbent on these automakers to build technology into their car that doesn't fare, fail or very rarely fails. Um, now, I think one key thing to keep in mind is we already have many roadway failures today, right? Failures of human drivers. And so I think it'll be a question of which is ultimately safer. None, neither may be perfect, right? The potential to fail may always exist. Um, but will the technology fail less often than a human driver fails? I think that's sort of a, a, key, a key issue that a lot of these you know, technology companies and automakers are talking about. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to thank you, uh, Stephen, for being with us uh, today. We have about 30 seconds left. Real quick question. This was uh, someone uh, emailed. How long does the battery charge take and how long, how often we have to replace a battery on an electric car or a hybrid? So, sure. So the battery charge time can vary. Um, so you would want to look at whatever particular model you're interested in, but you, you know, usually about several, at least several hours. Um, a lot of the, the ideal scenario is that you drive your car around during the day and then charge it overnight so that you always have a, fuel char a full, full charge. Um, and in terms of replacement, that is a good question. I think batteries are getting more durable, and so you're having to replace them less often. But I actually don't know off the top of my head what the average is nowadays. Washington Post reporter Stephen Overly talking about the uh, trends in cars. Pennsylvania Auto Show comes up starting next Thursday. Mr. Overly, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks. I appreciate it. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar.